0: Good morning everybody. Good morning. Well hey, my name is Alex. I'm one of the staff pastors here at Alpine. So glad that you could be joining us here this morning. We love to be here to celebrate and to talk about Jesus. And this morning we are going to be trying something a little new, something that we haven't done before. We love doing new things here, new songs, new seating, For those of you that didn't know, uh, this is our youth pastor and his wife. Fine print on this contest. Employees and family members of Alpine Chapel are not eligible to win this contest. (laughs) But we're going to be trying something new uh, this morning in this particular portion of the service, because here's what we believe. We believe that when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come to offer us a new religion. We already had enough of that. Jesus came to offer us a new relationship with the God of the universe who made us and loves us and wants a relationship with us. But just like any relationship, our relationship with God has its ups and it has its downs. And there are good times and there are difficult times. And there are those times that we wonder, how in the world are we going to move forward in this relationship? And so what we're going to be doing this morning is telling three different stories about how we relate to God and how God relates to us. I'll be sharing the first story from the book of Haggai, which is an actual book in the Old Testament. Some of you are learning that for the first time this morning. But I'm going to be sharing a story from the book of Haggai about how God's people relate to him and how he relates to us. After that, we'll have a chance to hear from one of our very own, Kate Zwiebelhofer, about her relationship with God and a pivotal moment in her life. And then finally, we'll get to hear from our lead pastor, Dave Mudd, about how these stories inform our relationship in this room with God. And how we move forward in our relationship when we leave this place this morning. So, three stories, three speakers, all about our relationship with the God of the universe and his relationship with us. So, before we dig into that, can we pray together and ask for God's help this morning? Jesus, thank you that we get to come together in this place and be with you, to be with each other, to celebrate, to have fun together, and to hear from you this morning. And so God, I ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds to everything that you would have in store for us, that you would help us to hear your voice clearly, and that you would give us the courage to move forward into anything and everything you would call us to do as we leave this place today. We love you, Lord, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So it had been 17 years, 17 years Since they had returned to the city, their grandparents and great-grandparents had lived within the walls, had walked these streets, had lived in the city before the army showed up. For over a year, the Babylonians had camped outside the walls, laying siege to the city of Jerusalem until the day when the walls were breached, their homes were burned down And King Nebuchadnezzar turned Solomon's temple, the house of God, into a pile of rocks at the top of the hill. The people of Jerusalem were ripped from their homes, deported to the nation of Babylon, and forced to live among and with the people who had destroyed their homeland. Decades passed. The Jews learned how to live as strangers in this strange new land, Until one day, a man arose to challenge the power of Babylon, King Cyrus of Persia. With his army, Cyrus swept over the Middle East like a tidal wave, toppling every nation that stood against him and eventually taking down Babylon and established Persia as the new regional superpower. And after he defeated all of his enemies, Cyrus issued this astonishing decree. The Jews were to go home to rebuild their nation, to rebuild the holy city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. Beyond all hope, from their perspective, God had answered their prayers. God had fulfilled his promise to them. And so under the direction of Nehemiah, Ezra, and Zerubbabel, who is a direct descendant of King David himself, the people returned to Jerusalem. God had fulfilled his promise. They were home but that was 17 years ago. Children had been born in the city again. And they had gone from newborns to toddlers to children, now to young men and women on the threshold of adulthood. Every morning when the children awoke, they would see the sunrise over the Kidron Valley and give its light and warmth of first importance to this pile of rocks at the top of the hill. And as the sun set and their mothers called them inside, the light lingered on that pile of stones as if it was reluctant to leave. The walls had been rebuilt, new homes had been constructed, but they lived under the shadow of that pile of rocks at the top of the hill for 17 years. The children of resettled Jerusalem would have thought it pretty strange that nothing ever seemed to happen with this pile of rocks except they had grown up with it. It was normal for them. But the elders of the city, the grandmas and grandpas, those who were young when the Babylonians had shown up, who had aged under the rule of Babylon and had now returned against all hope to their city, they remembered They remembered what it was like to bring their sacrifices to the temple with singing. They remembered what it was like to be in Jerusalem during the high feast days when the entire city was full of song and remembrance and celebration of everything that God had done. They remembered. And they longed to see those days again. That's what caused them to make the long journey back to Jerusalem from Babylon. All the people had returned with high hopes and good intentions they said that they would rebuild the city rebuild the temple and then things got complicated like things tend to do the samaritans their neighbors those half-blooded traitors started to oppose the rebuilding efforts the persian government cut its federal funding of the restoration project And all of a sudden, the work on the temple came to a grinding halt, and all that was left of their high hopes and best intentions was a pile of rocks at the top of the hill for 17 years. Nobody meant for it to take this long, but there always seemed to be something more pressing to attend to. The working men and women of the city were trying as hard as they could to establish the good life for themselves and their families back in their homeland. But no matter how hard they worked, no matter how much they did, it was never quite enough. They would sow seed into a field, cultivating it all year long only to harvest little more than what they needed to sow next year's fields money went out as quickly as it came in and no matter what they ate or drank or wore nothing could ease this cold and craving ache inside of them that ache greeted them every morning it stood beside them as they went to their doors looked to the pile of rocks at the top of the hill and said someday just not today for 17 years until one day all of that changed when the children and the elders and the men and women of jerusalem woke as the sun was rising and they heard one word ring across the city when the man of god haggai had come with a message It came first to Zerubbabel, the governor, and then to Joshua, the high priest, and finally to all the men and women of the city. When? These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. If not now, then when? Consider your ways. For 17 years, you have labored on your own houses, and you are still not satisfied. For 17 years, you have toiled and struggled and sacrificed, and what do you have to show for it? For 17 years, you have looked to the ruins at the top of the hill, the ruins of my house, and done nothing. When will you let me back in? You see, for God's people, that pile of rocks at the top of the hill was little more than a lingering item at the bottom of a to-do list. But for God, it was something much more. The temple was more than a building. It was a representation of God's presence with his people. It was where he had chosen to manifest his glory. It was his dwelling place. It was a physical expression of a spiritual reality, God's relationship with his people. For 17 years, those ruins have remained at the top of the hill. And God had sent Haggai to his people to say... When? When will you let me back in? So through the prophet, God was coming to his people to let them know he was done waiting. For 17 years, he had watched them run themselves into the ground and have nothing to show for it. For 17 years, he had listened to them say, it's not yet time, and he came to let them know that he was done waiting. What would they choose? Would they choose to let God back in? Would they choose to welcome his presence back to Jerusalem? Because before the Babylonians had come, God's presence had been with his people, but it had driven out decades before the Babylonians arrived. God's presence was driven out because of the violence and wickedness and injustice of his people. God judged his people in Babylon, brought them back to Jerusalem, and dreamed of being with them again. But God's people didn't feel the same way. God's presence was no longer being driven out because of wickedness and violence. Something else, more subtle and more dangerous, had taken hold. Apathy. God was no longer being driven out. He simply wasn't being invited back in. And so through Haggai, God said, enough's enough. I want to be with you. I want us to share this relationship again. I want to give you everything that I promised I would ever give you. But only if you want to be with me too. The message was clear. The best time to rebuild the temple was 17 years ago. The second best time was right now. What would they do? Would they welcome God's presence back into their midst? Would they welcome him back into their lives? And what's more, would we? At this time, I'd like to invite Kate Z to share a story from her life and her relationship with God.
1: Well, I gotta be honest with y'all, the story that I'm about to share is a little embarrassing, as many stories are when disobedience is concerned. God and I go way back I've known Jesus forever. Um, (laughs) I became a believer when I was four years old, and we pretty much lived at the church. I was there all the time, and I do mean all the time. If there were holy points, I got them all. We were there (laughs) Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and so God and I have been on some journeys together, and we've been on some really high mountaintops and some lower valleys, but through it all, I've learned how to make my faith my own, and I learned how to be more like Him, and Came here in 2001 as a children's pastor and worked here. Met my husband here, had my children here, grew up here, served in ministry here. And so if it's okay with you, I'm going to be really vulnerable this morning. And if it's not okay with you, it doesn't really matter because I have the microphone. So (laughs) because what I have learned is that Satan works really well when we hide things that we struggle with in the dark. And he can take it, and he can twist it in your brain to make it something different than what it is. But when we talk about how we felt and how we acted and how God redeemed, God brings it out into the light, and that is where healing can take place. So I'm just going to be really honest with you and share my story. Know that all the people mentioned in the story, we've been made amends. Everything is all good now. There's no need to pray or worry. But this is something that had happened to me. Now, I don't know about you, but the Holy Spirit usually speaks to me in forms of nausea. Um, I usually get a little rumbling in my stomach, like when he's about to tell me to something to give up or to fix or something like that. It's not a pleasant experience because it usually requires a conviction of some kind. So about three and a half years ago, the rumbling happened, and it was not indigestion. It was something that God had told me to do. Now, I was in the midst of ministry, and I've always been in the midst of ministry, and um, I'm a leader. Many people have come to Jesus because of my leading abilities and all of these things, and I really loved what I had to do, and I loved part of it, and I, I was, that's who I was. Like, I my identity was wrapped in upon what I did. And I struggled with people pleasing all my life, and God and I were working on it, and we were working on finding my identity in him. But three and a half years ago, he came to me, and he said, this particular ministry that you're in right now, you're going to have to give it up. And I said, interesting. Um, but okay, I get it, And but, but maybe I can just tweak it a bit, and I know that there may be something you have for me, but I'm going to come over here, and um, I'll fix it. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to counsel God, but... Um, I would not recommend it. Usually what he says goes. And so for six months, he was working on me. He said, Kate, you need to give this up. But he didn't tell me why. And I feel I have a right to know these things. And the thing was, is it was not a sin issue. It was not anything I was doing wrong or, or something that wasn't appropriate. It was something really good. But he told me to give it up. But this thing that I had to give up was who I was, or th- so I thought, And it was very difficult for me. So after six months of saying, Kate, to obey is better than sacrifice. You need to give this up. You need to give this up. You need to give this up. Finally, he said, "Okay, I guess we're going on the field trip in this one. These are not field trips that are enjoyable, friends. And so if I can do one thing for you this morning is to tell you, avoid field trips at all costs when it comes to something like this, because this meant It's going to happen, and now it's going to hurt a little. And so it was forcibly removed from me. And I had never felt rejection, pain, embarrassment, um, judgmentalness that I had when this was taken from me. Because I didn't understand why I wasn't fully in the headspace that this was being removed because God needed it to be removed from me, and I just had to choose to obey. It was just been taken from me and I was ticked, ticked. I was so angry and I am not an angry person. I'm an emotional person, I will give you that. And I have lots of highs and lots of lows and have been on emotional journeys and all those kinds of things, but I am not an angry person. And for two years, I was angry and my heart was hard and I was judgmental and bitter. And I would come in here on Sunday morning, and I would sit there during worship time, and I would look around and be like, I can sing better than you all put together. And I would be looking at other people doing things, and be like, why are they raising their hands? I know about them, and all these kinds of things. Horrible stuff for two years. I even tried to leave Alpine a couple of times, but somehow I always found my way back, which at the time seemed very unfortunate. But now I know it was God saying, no, no. That's not what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to let go of this peace. And so a year ago, it was Lent time, and I love Lent. I love Lent and Advent. I love celebrating the church calendar, and I love um, participating in that because to me, Easter is so much more sweet when Lent is available. And so um, God started working on me in January of what he wanted me to give up because he wanted me to give up TV. For me, I would rather give up water than give up TV Um, March Madness was on. I wasn't going to know who the top chef was. I mean, it was a devastating thing to happen to me. And two months, I'm not kidding, two months, you know you're giving up TV. I really can't give up TV. No, no, you're giving up TV. Because a couple months before that, he had said, my child, we need to figure out how to get this helmet of salvation stapled onto your head of who you are in me and that I'm the one that matters, not what you do or what people say, which seems so easy at the time. And so the TV piece I know now was to get rid of any distraction that may cause me to not do what He was calling me to do. And so finally, in my holier of holy moments, I said, "Okay, God, I will give up TV. Notice the sacrifice I am making for you," and um, and I did. And so God began the work, and the work hurt. The work hurt. But so I would come before him in the mornings, and it would be really, really quiet, and I would open the Bible, and I would pray, and I would sing. And when I first started, it was just kind of like, all right, here I am. Now what? Now what are we supposed to do? And little by little, in the quietest of the moments, God would speak things to my heart, and the envelope of sadness and rejection started to fall away. He would remind me what Scripture said. He would remind me who I was And then he said, well, since we're down here anyway, let's go back 25 years and all that stuff that's been hanging you up, we might as well just chip away at that too. And he did. And things that had kept coming back to haunt me from 25 years before were gone. Gone. Completely. And that was an amazing miracle in itself. Because I just kind of figured, well, I was just going to have to live like this. This was part of my cross to bear. And so Each time that I met with him, I got a little less angry and a little less angry, and all of a sudden I started to realize, oh, this is not about you dropping me off in some wasteland and saying that... I wasn't good enough or I I couldn't do what you would ask me to do and taking something away from me in punishment. Because the thing was, even when I was my most angry and I wasn't really, you know, you know how you go to prayer sometimes and you're like, I just won't bring up the fact that I'm angry and maybe he won't notice it. You know what I mean? And he does. um, He does. He knew where my heart was. He never left me and said, figure it out. He was always there. When I was weeping bitterly because I felt so alone and rejected, he was the one holding my hand. He was the one bringing scripture verses to my mind that I had memorized as a child in church, reminding me of who he was. But he was saying, we have to get through this so that we can move on, and it took a while. So during this Lenten time, all of a sudden, things started to fall off. All of a sudden, it started to make sense. And then one time, I was standing in the grocery store and I was pushing my cart down the line, and all of a sudden I went, oh, I'm healed. And God said, Welcome back. And I said, Thank you. <laughs> and I have to tell you, in that moment, I was really hoping for a big production number, like a burning bush of some kind, but it was the most quiet grocery store conversation. <laughs> which is not exciting to share, but it's how God worked because I was back. And he said, now let's get to work. This is why I wanted to give this up to you. Look what I got for you right now. And so a part of me was like, I can't believe I wasted two years of being such a jerk and so mad. The hashtag, you belong here, I was like, liars. I do not belong here. (laughs) You sit on the throne of lies. It's not true. He said, this is what I have for you. And I have to tell you, it has been so much fun, and it is so beyond my wildest imagination of what he's had me do and what he has had me participate in and the way that he has used me and what's left to come. And so sometimes I ask him, like, God, why didn't you just tell me that if I gave this up, this is what would happen? I think I would have given it up a lot quicker. (laughs) He said, it was not my place to tell you at that point. Because sometimes I'm asking you to obey when you don't see the full picture, because maybe it's not all about you. Okay. So I'd love to say that now, you know, things are fabulous. God tells me to do something and I obey immediately. I'm getting better. But God is still working at me. And a case in point is, not long after all of this happened, um, I was driving in my subdivision, and God said, you're going to do a Bible study with these women, and you're going to ask them, and they're going to be teachers, and we're going to do it this summer. And I said, okay, all right, that sounds fine. And he gave me four names, boom, 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 right in my head. And I went, but Lord, except for one of them, they don't even know who I am. Like, am I really supposed to do this? And he said, really? And I went, oh, sorry, 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 I'll do it, I'll do it. See, 10 minutes, progress, 10 minutes, not two years, 10 minutes, progress. So I sent out this email to these ladies, and I said, you don't really know me that well, but here's what I think, and one right after another within 15 minutes, yes, yes, this is what I've been looking for, yes, and it has been the most moving and important Bible studies I have ever been a part of, and first service, they were all here supporting me, and they got the reserve seating, and I didn't sit there. what obedience looks like I would much rather obey because with obedience comes freedom and I know that some of you out there today have been hurt and are angry and are bitter and are sad and maybe you're feeling rejected but can I just share with you I have been through periods of great loss I have been through periods of great rejection and sadness and I have been through a period of freedom and freedom is so much better there's healing friends Freedom is here for you through obedience.
2: Isn't that awesome? Uh, I found somebody funnier than me. (laughs) Way funnier. What a story. Two amazing stories, if you will. Let's take a minute to pray, because I think in these closing minutes, we need to process something pretty big for each of our hearts. And so God, I just pray that you would um, awaken us to the wonder of your presence that longs to be with us every moment of every day, every minute, every hour, and that we would just encounter you today, the you that wants to walk with us. On your name we pray, amen. So I guess the question that we just pose in these final moments together is, your way or God's way? Your way, our way, whether it's an adjustment of God's way or a full rebellion of it, like the children of Israel, doesn't seem to work out well, comes with extra pain, comes with extra baggage. And and I got to tell you, the the children of Israel, it wasn't they didn't know God and have experienced God, and Kate knows God and has experienced God. Those things are all true. But what was it? What was going on in those moments? And what goes on in us that causes us to... Maybe being different, if you will. So this is a message of priority. Don't you love priority talks? How many times have you you've been told, get your priorities straight? How many times has the person you love said, man, I just wish I held a greater priority in your life? And yet, this is what this message is about. It's a message of putting first things first. Matter of fact, most people who are successful will tell you the difference between those who succeed and those who fail are the fact that they put first things first. No matter what area that is. And how do we determine to know what's first and what's not? 17 years after returning from exile, the Jews still had not built the temple of God. Now, guys, you have to understand, they were sent back by the king of Persia to rebuild the temple upon Jeremiah's prophecy that they should do that. It was a command, and they go back to rebuild the temple. And 17 years later, somehow, and man, just get this, they had convinced themselves that it wasn't time yet. Think about our lives and our journeys, and we know what it is God wants for us. We hear the truth every Sunday of what he's longing to do in our lives, and yet we as well don't lean into those or don't step out in faith, or when we do, we experience God is who he says he is, and then we forget. And so they're sitting there going, it's not time yet, and God's going, when is the time? Just when? I so want to be with you guys. When will it be time? And that's where we pick this story up. 50,000 Jews have returned to the promised land to rebuild the temple. That's why they went back. 17 years later, the temple of God is in ruins, and their homes are complete. And they're comfy. And the message in chapter 1 that Haggai, in this two-chapter book, is trying to get us to understand is that the leaders and people, the reason they're all frustrated... And the reason they've tried to make their own lives work, and the reason they're comfortable is be, a reason, and the reason their lives aren't working is because they're comfortable and they've neglected the temple of God. Which, by the way, in biblical times, the temple simply met, represented the presence of God. It's where God chose to come and dwell and meet with His people. And they're neglecting building the temple of God. And so God says, "Is it time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses?" Now, did some research, and most scholars believe that the panel that they used for their houses was actually cedar that was brought from Lebanon, very expensive, and was supposed to be used for the temple that was going to be built. And when they got discouraged, and when opposition came, and when it just seemed easier and more comfortable, they took the panel for the temple and built their own houses. Whew. While this house, God says, lies in ruins, give careful thought to your ways. And I love this because, man, this is God saying, come on, process truth. Process what's happened in your lives so far, in your history. Give careful thought to your ways. You're going to do this with me or without me. And to do our own thing, and you have to understand this, is to pull back the invitation for God to come in. To continue in life, to do our own thing and not trust God and not obey God is to say, I don't need you. Even though we don't say it, because we know better than to say it. And I'm talking to those of us who follow Jesus this morning, because this is a tough one. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. You ever felt that? Never seems to be enough. And so they lived in constant frustration and discontentment while the pile of rocks sat on a hill. Nothing satisfied. And we can't pass over this lesson very easily this morning because it's for us too. If you devote yourself to sewing and eating and drinking and clothing yourself and earning wages but neglect your ministry in the body of Jesus Christ his church you will live in constant frustration. It's just the way it was made to be done. God has a plan for your life. We live outside of that plan there's frustration. He says in 1 Corinthians 3:16, "Don't you know that you yourselves are the temple that God's spirit dwells in your midst?" That's why Sundays are so fun, so amazing, because God's presence is here with us in a powerful way. If you spend your time and energy seeking comfort and security from the world and do not spend yourself for the glory of God, every pleasure will leave its sour aftertaste of depression, guilt, and frustration. It just will. Maybe for some of us, we're... we're, understanding that more today in this moment than we ever have the reason I mentioned the glory of God and I think it's important for us to understand what that means is because in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Haggai Haggai's remedy for frustration goes like this are you ready because they're frustrated obviously they knew what they were supposed to do they weren't obeying they had justified taking care of themselves and not taking care of what God longed for them to take care of they had justified that and couldn't figure out why they were frustrated and here's what Haggai gives as a, as a reason. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may appear in my glory, says the Lord. God's going, go build the house so I can show up. And the sign that you want to build the house, obey the build of the house, means you want me part of your lives. Because I want to be part of your lives. And this is what I want us to get. Both then and now, the real problem is not the neglect of a building but indifference to the presence of God. It's not the neglect of a building. It's not. The, it wasn't about the building. It was about God's presence. It was will you welcome me or won't you? And to the degree that we open up our lives, open the door of our lives to a God who stands at the door and knocks and says, whoever will open it, I will come in. Every part of your heart, every place you're hiding, every place you're giving, if we'll open it all up to God, he says he will come in. And he will dwell with us. (laughs) To seek first the kingdom of God is to seek his presence, to invite his presence. Simply saying, God, you're welcome here. Haggai is saying, put first things first. And God was saying to Kate, put first things first. Stop trying your way, it won't work. I have a plan that's better. It may not be easy, but it's better. Hey, Jews, stop trying to do this yourself. Stop worrying about your own self and build the house of God. Put energy into the temple. See, the temple was the center for worshiping God, and it represented the heart and soul of the Old Testament faith. And even though God is everywhere, and we believe that, the temple was the place on earth where God dwelled in a special sense, the holy of holies. And for the temple to lie in ruins was to neglect the worship and the presence of God. It was to choose themselves over God. They said it without saying it. God, you're not welcome here. And it screamed of their misplaced priorities. And misplaced priorities as a follower of Jesus is disobedience. And it's what was happening. They weren't obeying what God had commanded them to do. And what Kate was experiencing was disobedience to what God had called her to do. Because there's consequences to disobedience as we choose to follow Jesus. The temple of the Old Testament existed for the glory of God. And the church today exists for the glory of God. And we are the church. And Jesus made a bridge between us and God, and so God doesn't dwell in a temple made by human hands, but he dwells in our hearts if we'll invite him in through his son Jesus. And he doesn't want just a part of your heart. He doesn't want just the piece you're comfortable with. He wants it all. And he's saying that his presence, if you'll just let him in, he'll come in. And the sour fruit of this failure is a life of chronic frustration, and God knows it. And so he's coming to his kids, and he's saying, it's time. You're frustrated. You're hurting. You're trying to do this on your own, and you can't. Give careful thought to your ways, he says in verse 6. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. I know, I'm reading it again. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. He's basically saying, listen, he who seeks to save his life will lose it to continual frustration, continual pain, hurt that God never intended if we would just give our lives to him in this life and the next. But he who loses his life for the glory of God and the good of his cause will find life and deep fulfilling life. What a promise. If you build it, I'll show up. And then verse 9 sums up the situation in Jerusalem. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. You ready for this? This is my favorite part. What you brought home, God says, I blew away. That's not falling good, is it? Let me say it again. Sometimes as parents, we've got to go in and clean our kids' rooms out. God's saying, man, I oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. And you need to know your need of me, what you bring home. And here he says it, why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house, your own thing, your own comfort, your own way. (laughs) First things first is about obedience. Not so we can be God's people, but because we are. And there's a promise attached. We sang a song growing up, an old hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. What is the motivation of obedience in the heart of a parent? Why does God want us to obey? Man, I hope you get this. I Hope you get it. What is the motivation of the heart of a parent when it comes to telling their kids to obey? They're good. That's what it's all about. You want their good. Most of the time, if you're a healthy parent and you love your kids, you want their good. And so you want them to obey. And so you ask them to do things or ask them not to do things based on what? That life would be good. And God is our parent. We were driving down the road yesterday. My son goes, Dad, is it hard being a parent? He's 12. And I'm like, yeah. Now, understand, we just came out of a conversation, he and I, talking about value, right? Right? And I'm saying, listen, you got to find your value in God and what he thinks about you. You can't hang your hat on the value of friendship because friends will come and go and friends are fickle. But your friendships determine your direction and quality of life. It's important. But man, they're going to let you down and you can't hang your value on what you do. He's a great basketball player and I love supporting him, but his value can't be found in that. It has to be found in Jesus. It has to be found in what God thinks about him because God will never let him down. And man, as a parent, I'm sitting here going, I want you to obey certain things I say because I want you to understand what it means to know God, what it means to have a good life. And the God of the universe, who is our parent, is up there just simply saying, build my house. Build my house in your life so my presence can come and dwell in it. And I promise you, it will be for your good right now you're frustrated and you're upset and you're going through things that you hate that you're going through and you don't understand why and I'm sitting here telling you right now it's because you've neglected me. Maybe not fully. God just wants us to want him as bad as he wants us. Man, I'm, that's hit me right between the eyes in this season of my life. I asked John backstage, I said, John, do you want God as bad as He wants you? He goes, Well, that's why I'm here. <laughs> I'm working on that. He said, Do you? I'm like, Nope. Nope, but I'm working on that. I want to want God as bad as He wants me, but God wants me pretty bad. He's gone to incredible lengths to build a bridge for you and I to obey. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but you see the difference in Kate and her story? And who she is and how God's using her when she obeyed. God wants you to want to be with him. Do you want to know how to practice his presence? Be with him. It's been time in his Word. It's been time I loved it this morning when during our worship, Meg just got down on her knees and just her and God. She didn't care about what anybody else in here thought. Just wanted God to know that she loves him. She wants his presence in her life. I mean, that's a powerful outward display of what's going on inside the heart. God wants us to want to be with each other. I grew up in church. I'm, I'm, I'm jaded. I think it's the best thing you could do with your Sunday. People disagree with me. There's other things to do in this world. There's other things to go after. And I get that. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes we've got to follow our kids to sports. Sometimes we can't be here. But man, if we can be here, we should be here. Because it's important to be together, to put God first, to honor him, to worship him, to encourage each other. I get encouraged so much by being here. From God, from people. And you know what else he wants us to want? He wants us to want to be in the world. Not of it, but in it. Loving people. Gathering your neighbors. Spending time with them. My buddy Kirk is out of work right now and doing Uber, and he's talking to people in Uber about Jesus every time they jump in his car. In verse 12 through 15, Haggai reports that Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people obey. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? They obey. And they begin to work on the temple, and on the 24th day of the sixth month, so after 17 years of neglect and frustration, the people begin to learn their lesson to seek the kingdom first and all those things will be added unto them. Get this. This is awesome. They obey. And you know what God says in the following verse? He says, because you obeyed, I am with you. And with God comes the blessing of God. It doesn't always look the way we want it to look. But it's the blessings of God. Followers of Jesus are passionate about his glory, not theirs. Followers of Jesus are passionate about his house. Followers of Jesus are passionate about his mission, and they're passionate about his plan. You wonder what this is up here for? Me too. Maybe we can illustrate it this way. Every day that you live, you exchange a day of your life for something. Every day. It's as if at the start of life, each of us are given a jar of coins that represent every day we'll live. Some of us have more coins than others. We can't see in the jar, but we're given life, and we're given a number of days. And we live in America where the average lifespan is 70 to 80 years old, and some coins in people's jar will be far less, and some may go a little longer. And every one of us are given a life to live that comes to us one day, at a time. And you take each day's coin. Lots of coins. What this one? It's a quarter. It's 25 cents. Close to 24 days. Twenty-four hours in a day, right? That dumb. <laughs> Go with me. <laughs> Hear me. You take each day's coin, and you exchange it for something, don't you? Maybe it's a day at work or school. Or shopping, or vacation, or being with family, or choosing time to spend on your hobby, or being with friends, or going to church, or on a mission trip. You spend that day, every day you're given. You spend it. But once it's spent, you can never get the coins back to spend them differently. You can't. They're gone. And the art of living wisely, like God is asking us to do, like Kate found out, difficult because often the choice is not between the bad or the good. Sometimes we're pretty good at choosing good over bad. The choice is often between the good or the best. And a lot of times we settle for the good. In the book of Haggai, just two chapters, the people of God had made a choice that in their minds was a good choice. Take care of themselves. But God had a better choice build his house. Spend time with God. Spend time with his people. Share Jesus with the world. That's how we practice his presence in this world. Obey. Obey what God has for you. How many of you know God has a plan for your life? It's a good plan, and we obey it. And we'll come to the end of this life. And I don't know how many coins each of you are going to get, how many days you'll have on this earth. We'll come to the end of this life. This is just me making some assumptions. And we'll bring our days to the God of the universe and we'll say, here it is. And some days will have been spent in our way, doing our thing, wasting. Some days we'll be able to celebrate that we invited God to join us. You know what I think will happen They'll just be laid out. Again, just go with me. Jesus will sit down and say, those first 18 years of your life, you didn't know me. But man, when you were 19 years old, you found me. And you embraced my presence and you invited me in. But not fully. There were still areas of your life and your heart that you wanted to do on your own. But man, I celebrate these days you chose to do with me. Because I wanted every day to be with you. Part of your life. Because when you turn in one minute towards God, you have a better chance of turning a day into God, time with God, than the other way. And I wonder at the end of our life what our coins, our days will represent. Did we do it with God? Who just longs to do it with us? God's ways with him. So I guess I would invite us to ask a question, where do I need to welcome God in? In what areas of my life? Relationships, activities, things I do, who I am, do I need to let God in and welcome Him? And let His presence change you from the inside out like He's changing many of us sitting in this room. It's time for the church to let God in. He stands at the door and knocks. He says, whoever will open it, And invite me in. I will come in. And that's the best life. And I think in a culture that pulls us in so many directions, that's the best question. Would you stand with me this morning? You're not given tomorrow that you know of. You're not promised it anyway. You're promised today. You got a coin. It's been issued to you today. 24 hours tomorrow you may get another one what are you going to do with it let me suggest we do something this week with maybe a little bit of our time that we read the book of Haggai every day and we process what God was saying to the children of Israel and what he might be saying to us I'll bet if you do that God will uncover some big truths because he loves to talk to us the other thing I'd ask you to do is go on a journey with us See, because I think we need to understand hope and what hope is. And so next week, we're going to start a seven-week series leading into Easter. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about hope in this form, that we have hope as followers of Jesus because we have promises that God has given. And God fulfills his promises. And so we're going to look at seven big promises that God has given us as followers of him. We're going to unpack them together for seven weeks. And the junior high are going to meet on Sundays at 11 during our 11 o'clock service downstairs to process the promises. Our kids' ministry is going to process seven weeks of the same promises. Our student ministry on Wednesday night is going to talk about the same promises. And then on Thursdays, after every one of those Sundays, we're going to open up the gym 7 o'clock in the evening to 8.30, round tables, and we're going to sit around for those who want to come. We're going to discuss the promises of God. And what does it mean to have hope because we have his promise? What does it mean to follow him and welcome him in and let him in so that we don't fear and so that we can trust and we can obey? And we would invite you. There'll be child care. You can come. You can hang. You can be part of it. But all the way to Easter, we're going to celebrate everything that God says he does and will do as a church. And let's see what will happen on the other side of that. So my challenge is, welcome God in the areas of your life that you've closed the door. Read Haggai chapter 1 over and over this week as an investment in your day, maybe turning your day towards him. And lastly, let's see what God will do in these seven weeks leading to Easter as we come together around his promises that maybe it won't inspire hope for us to be who he called us to be. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for our time together this morning. And I pray that you would awaken our hearts to who you are, that you are a God who longs to be with us, and that we can simply invite you in because of Jesus. And you can come and establish your rule and reign in our lives as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we thank you for that. Thank you for the coin and the hours we've been given today. May we live these with you, inviting your present in to every moment. In your name we pray. Amen. There will be people here to pray with you this morning. If you would like to be prayed with, enjoy the Super Bowl. Enjoy family and friends. We love you all. Have a great week. See you next week.